Um, I just want to extend to you guys uh, just a warm welcome, especially to our many visitors and guests. Uh, it is just such a privilege to got, have you guys join with us. And uh, just to come together as a church to worship after Christmas, I think it's just uh, such an exquisite pleasure. Um, the passage comes today from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39, and I'll read for you. You guys can follow along. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and, gre- and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, and Mary responded, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of God. Uh, The title of my message today is uh, The Magnificat, and it comes from the first word in the Latin translation of the song. Magnificat means my soul magnifies. And it's one of the most famous songs. It's one of the, the greatest songs in the Bible. This is Mary's song. And we can even say that this is the first Christmas carol. And so what do we learn from this song? And we see three things, and this is basically uh, the outline. Number one, we're going to look at what led Mary to sing this song, right? And we see our need for Christian community. And then we're going to look at the deep uh, theology of the song. And uh, the second point is that Mary's song shows us God's concern for the lowly. And then number three, that salvation is the reversal of the world's values, okay? So let's start. Point number one, our need for community. Last week, right, we looked at the story where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he announces to her the birth of Jesus, that she's going to give birth to the Savior. And we saw that in that story, Mary emerges as this great model of faith. And she says this incredible line at the end of that story. She says, uh, I am the Lord's servant made be unto me. Right? That's an incredible statement of faith. But then notice that she does not, after saying that, immediately go into the lofty praises of the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Rather, what we see is that though she has accepted what the angel has said, it is a kind of resignation. Because you see, Mary's heart, and I love you know, the psychological realism of this story, Mary's heart was heavy. 
Why? Because you see, what the angel said to her, yes, was a tremendous blessing, but it was also a tremendous hardship and adversity. Why? Because God was essentially asking Mary to be a single unwed mother. And the reality of that was weighing down on Mary. And so what does Mary do? I love this about Mary. She goes with haste to see her relative Elizabeth. Now, the word haste there is the Greek word spode. And it does mean haste, but it could also mean determined earnestness, right? And so she gets up immediately with absolute determination to go and to see her relative. Why? You see, the angel hinted at this in the story. The angel, remember, says to Mary, your relative Elizabeth, who is old and barren, is now pregnant, for nothing is impossible with the Lord. And what she's essentially saying is, why don't you go and visit her? And so Mary, up immediately with haste, you know, with determination, she goes and sees, her, sees Elizabeth. And it's at that moment, finally, when it all comes together, right? When it finally clicks what the angel has been saying to her, And the gospel joy that had been missing sinks into her heart. And she bursts forth in exuberant praise, right? The the joy of the blessing finally hits her, but only after, and this is very important, only after she sees Elizabeth. What does this tell us? It tells us that in order to understand the gospel, we need Christian community. In order for the truth to really hit us, We can't go it alone. Notice what Mary doesn't do in the story. When the angel leaves, she doesn't say, you know what? I need time to be alone right now. I need to get away from, from, from it all. I need to meditate on this by myself for a while. No. She gets up immediately, and she goes with absolute determination to see Elizabeth, a fellow sister believer, and it's only then that she's able to process what the angel has said to her, right? It's only after she's able to share her experiences with Elizabeth that the joy of the gospel penetrates her heart. You see, Christianity is not a solitary thing. We need to experience Christ through community. And let me say that without community, You cannot understand the gospel. Not really. Not fully. We need community. We need other people. And the best explanation of this that I've ever heard uh, is given by Tim Keller. And Tim Keller is this pastor in New York City, uh, deeply, deeply influential to me. And uh, he gives this illustration that he repeats all the time. And I think it's it's really the best explanation of this. He quotes a passage from C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Fantastic book, by the way. I recommend it. And so I'm going to read you this passage, but let me set it up for you, okay? So C.S. Lewis has these two friends, Charles and Ronald. And Charles and Ronald, uh, he's always, you know, with them. They're always hanging out together, always enjoying each other's company. But one day, Charles dies, okay? So let me read you the quote. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charlesian joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Do you see the argument that C.S. Lewis is making? He's saying, 
Now that Charles is dead and it's just me and Ronald, you would think that I have more of Ronald, but actually I have less of Ronald because that part of Ronald that only Charles can bring out is now gone. You see, C.S. Lewis is saying that in order to fully know anybody, you can't just know him by yourself. You need other people to bring out all the facets and dimensions of that person. And if that is true with people, how much more is it true with God? We can only know God in and through community. Why? Because you need other people to see things you can't see. You can't possibly see it all by yourself. In fact, to go it alone is a subtle kind of arrogance because you're basically saying, I figured it all out. You need other people to help you to understand the gospel and what it means to live out the gospel. Let me just share my own story recently. Uh, in fact, very recently, I was in small group. And you know how in small group you kind of break up uh, to share uh, prayers and share requests. And so uh, this one day, I was, uh, I was with the, my prayer group, and I was sharing this story with them, this ongoing drama that I've been having with my family. And uh, I, know I did and said something to my mother-in-law that she interpreted as being offensive and rude. And much to my surprise, several weeks later, I found out that my mother-in-law was still feeling um, hurt by it, and she wanted me to go down and apologize to her. And I remember thinking, uh, first of all, I did nothing wrong. <laughs> Second of all, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to go down and apologize. And so I was sharing, you know, so much, it's so time consuming, you know. So I, I was sharing this with my group. And honestly, what I was really expecting them to say was sh- to show me sympathy and to say, oh, yeah, you know, I totally understand. Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> but to my shock, they didn't say that. They looked at me and they said, oh, no, Michael, you need to go down. You need to go apologize. You know, and they were trying to explain to me that, you know, while from my perspective, it didn't seem like I did anything wrong, uh, because there is this culture gap that maybe I did, you know, do something that was offensive. And I need to go and mend the relationship. You know, I need to really live out the gospel, right, and reconcile with her. And to be honest with you, if it were not for my small group, I honestly would not have gone down. You know, I was honestly expecting them to just, you know, hang with me and say, yeah, we have your back. But they, they, if it were not for them, I would not have seen my need to go down, that I need to go down, that, that I need to live out the gospel in, that, in my life, right? You see, we need other people. And therefore... If you want to go deep into the gospel, if you want to understand the gospel in your life, you need Christian community. You need other people to see all the facets and dimensions of who God is. Now, how can we work this out? You know, what's the uh, practical steps that we can take? Let me offer you two very quick ones. Number one, get involved in small group. Now, I know that uh, for some of you, there are very real practical and logistical uh, uh, obstacles, right? So that you have family obligations, you have, maybe you have to work. I understand. I completely sympathize. But for some of you, it is possible to go to small group, but it, is, it would be a great hassle. It would be a great inconvenience. Uh, and maybe it would, it would be very uncomfortable. Let me gently encourage you to make that effort 
to be part of a small group because you cannot experience the gospel and understand the gospel without community. And this is one of the reasons why we split our small group into two groups. So that there's a Thursday group and a Wednesday group so that there are more opportunities, there are more uh, chances for you to get involved, okay? Second bit of a second thought, which is number two, get, uh, make friends in the church, you know? Hang out with people midweek. Say, let's go out for coffee. Let's go out for lunch. You know, don't be the type of person that you sort of quietly slip in Sunday morning, listen to the message, you know, sing a song or two, and then slip out and sort of get your thing. It's a very individualistic way to approach the gospel. We need community. All right, so that's point number one. We need community to understand the gospel. Point number two, Mary's song shows us God's concern for the lowly. So Mary sings, right, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for, verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And she repeats that word humble estate in verse 52. He, God has exalted, which means lifted up, those of humble estate. Now I want to be honest with you, I, I'm really not a big fan of that translation, humble estate, because it sounds so, I don't know, like, clunky, you know, and so, like, abstract. Uh, the Greek word there is the penos, and it literally means the low ones. It literally means the lowly, the humble, the poor. And I think it would really help us if we realize that Mary is drawing on, by using that word, she's drawing on Old Testament imagery. There are, in fact, two songs in the Old Testament that are strikingly similar to Mary's song. In fact, they're actually very much parallel songs. And it's Psalm 113 and then Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. And there's this one line, right, in those two Old Testament songs that are repeated word for word, and I I think it's very beneficial to us to hear it. Okay, so this is the imagery that Mary has in mind. God raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash. Now, what what is the ash heap? In every ancient city, what you would do is you would gather all the trash and the refuse, and you would put it in this huge dump, right? This huge pile of garbage. And every once in a while, they would burn the trash, and it would become this ash heap. And now, what are the poor doing on the ash heap? They're scavenging for valuables. I actually, you know, this, this means that uh, they are the poorest of poor. I actually saw this when I visited India. In India, you would have these huge mounds of filthy, disgusting garbage. And I would see homeless children scampering on those piles looking for morsels of food to eat. That's the imagery that Mary has in mind. And Mary says, God has lifted up the poor from the ash heap. And what that means is that God has compassion on the poor that God favors the poor. And we can even say that God works in and through the poor and the weak and the lowly. And we see this throughout the Old Testament again and again, right? That God chooses the younger son who is socially low and not the older son. God goes to the most powerful empire of its day, Egypt. And who does he choose to be his people? Their slaves, the Hebrew slaves. We're studying through the book of Judges right now in small group. And we see that in every judge, with every single leader, the judge is profoundly weak, profoundly lowly in some way. And we see it in our story. 
If you read the commentaries, all the commentators note, it's striking. Have you noticed how woman-centric this story is? You know, for us modern people, it's no big deal, right? Aren't women 50% of the population? Don't they deserve their equal share of, of you know, time and stories? But we don't understand how the ancient world worked. You see, in the ancient world, people were incredibly sexist and prejudiced against women. Did you know that a woman's testimony was inadmissible in a court of law? So that if a man committed murder in broad daylight, but he was in front of a bunch, a bunch of women, he would be released for lack of reliable witnesses. Because the mentality, right, was that women were basically overgrown children. And you can't trust what a woman says. Who knows what they're thinking in their feeble little minds? That was the mentality. That was the culture, okay? And do you know then, do you realize how scandalous and outrageous the gospel was in the ancient world? The first witnesses, the first recipients of the news that Jesus is born are women. These two women right here. The first witness of the resurrection, the seminal event in Christianity, was Mary Magdalene. And it was to Mary, it fell on her shoulders to go and share the news to the disciples and through the disciples to the world. And do you understand uh, what a strike this was against early Christianity? One of the fiercest and earliest critics of Christianity was a man named Celsus. And Celsus had this argument that got a lot of mileage. You know, this was his most persuasive argument. He says, you can't believe in Christianity because, I quote, Christianity was founded on the witness of hysterical women. And so, therefore, it was a great source of embarrassment and scandal to the early Christians that women were the principal witnesses. And yet here it is. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that this story is true. Because you know what? If you're going to make up a story, you would not make women the principal witnesses. You would make them stalwart and trustworthy men. And yet it's women. Here it is. Why? Because it was the truth. As uncomfortable and as inconvenient as it was, it was the truth. And what does that tell us? It tells us that God loves and favors the poor women, all those of low social standing in the ancient world. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's the meaning of Christmas. That God so loves the lowly, that he so identifies with the poor, that he sent his son to be born into a poor family. Did you know that Jesus' family was poor? There's a story... Uh, in Luke, where Jesus' family goes and offers sacrifices in the temple. And they offer two pigeons, which is the prescribed uh, sacrifice for the poorest of families. And so therefore, it's no surprise, right, that Jesus was born in an animal stable. There was no room at the inn. And do you know what an animal stable smells like? Can you imagine Jesus, you know, being born in an animal stable and then Joseph and Mary emerging from that what they must have smelt like. Let me give you a contemporary image, okay? Let me give you an equivalent image. Imagine that you're on the BART, and then all of a sudden, this homeless family comes in, and they're dressed in rags, and they have manure, you know, on their body. And they smell to 
high heaven. They stink, you know? And they're disgusting. You just want to, like, edge away as discreetly as possible away from them. That is our image of Jesus' family. You know, we have so romanticized the Christmas story. We've so sanitized it and stripped it of all of its gritty reality so that we can commercialize it and package it so that middle-class people won't feel uncomfortable. But this is the real Christmas story. God's radical and scandalous love and commitment to the poor and to the weak and to the lowly. And to the extent that you believe the Christmas story, that you accept it into your heart, you will be for the poor and the weak and the lowly. And so let me offer you some practical steps. What does this mean for our lives? Two things. Number one, mercy ministries. Mercy ministry in Indelible Grace Church is not an add-on. It is essential. It is at the core of our mission to extend the mercy of Christ to the poor in our community. So I want, I encourage everyone to get involved in mercy ministries, you know, in some way, in whatever way you can. But let me offer you a second thought, which is that if you believe that God is for the poor and the weak and the lowly, it will radically change the way you make friends. And it will radically change the way you associate with people. When I was in junior high, uh, my family had just moved to a new city. So uh, when I went, I was a brand new kid. I didn't know anyone. You know, I was one of those new kids in school. And on top of that, uh, I was dreadfully socially awkward. Uh, I still am in many ways. Um, and so I'm socially awkward. I'm a brand new kid. And, you know, I'm kind of do- I was dopey looking. And so I was frankly rejected by all the cool and popular kids. You know, I was not welcomed into their little circle. And, uh, you know, the most traumatic period for me was snack period, you know? Because I loved, I loved class time, because in class time, you're assigned a seat. You know, and you're forced to sit, and you have people around you you can kind of talk with. It was great. But at snack time, you can sit with and associate with anyone you liked. Right? So it was very traumatic for me. At snack time, I would kind of walk around campus, and... I, I wanted to hang out with the cool and popular kids, but, you know, I wasn't welcome. So I was sort of walking around looking for kind of a group to join. And I remember seeing this group of kids that everyone knew were the social outcasts. You know, they, were, they looked dorky, they talked dumb, you know, and everyone knew they were the losers of the school. And so you might say to me, well, why didn't you just go and sit with them? I'm sure they would have welcomed you. It's better to have friends than to be alone. But you know what the deep, deep irony of it is? Even though I was rejected, I was still a social snob. And I said to myself, there is no way I'm going to sit with those losers. Because if I do, then everyone will know. It'll be confirmed. I'm a loser too. We all remember junior high and high school as being that brutal period, right? Brutal time when everyone is just so shallow and so superficial. Everyone wants to be with the cool kids. No one wants to hang with the uncool kids, you know? And those of us who are in our 20s and 30s and beyond, we comfort ourselves and we say, we are so beyond that. Are we? I propose to you 
that we are exactly the same. We're just so much more subtle and sophisticated about it, you know? And maybe the definitions have changed. Maybe now what's cool and attractive is now things like wealth, you know, prestige, beauty, intelligence. But there's still a set of people, right, who we want to associate with, who we want to crack into their circle. And there's still a set of people who are absolutely no value to us, who are meaningless to us. They are the nobodies of this world. But you see, the gospel is that God favors and loves the nobodies of this world. And insofar as you believe the gospel, it'll change the way you make friends. It'll change the way you associate with people at work and at school so that you won't be making constantly this calculation of what that person can do for you, but you'll be open to embracing people who have absolutely no value to you so that when you associate with them, when you're friends with them, people will say, what does that mean about you? It will strip you absolutely of your social snobbery. All right, so that's point number two. God favors the lowly. Finally, point number three is salvation is reversal. This is, this is radical, okay? So hold on to your seatbelts. The song shows us, Mary's song shows us that God favors the poor and the lowly. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is that God opposes the rich and the mighty. And you can see those two elements there in absolute stark relief in verses 52 and 53. Look with me there. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted, lifted up those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. What are these verses telling us? That in the end, there will come a great and terrible reversal. And and the first will actually be last, and the last will be first. You see, in this life, there is a hierarchy. And this hierarchy tells us who are the winners and who are the losers. And those on top of the hierarchy went to prestigious colleges. They have a successful career. They make lots of money, have a big house, drive nice cars. They have a beautiful girlfriend on their arms. They're married to a rich man. They are healthy. They work out. They look great. They have a picture-perfect family. If you have any of these things, you are on top of the hierarchy. But if you don't have these things, you are on the bottom and you are losing the race of life. But the Bible says there is coming a great and terrible reversal. And the high and the mighty will be cast down and the poor and the lowly will be lifted up. Why? Why does this happen? Because you see there's a meaning behind the hierarchy, right? There's a meaning. Wealth doesn't just mean you have a lot of money. Career success doesn't just mean you have a lot of job skills. What does it mean? It means that you have finally arrived, that you, have, that you are a somebody, right? That you have significance and worth, that you are not a nobody. You see, the hierarchy is a value system. It has spiritual freight. It is almost like an alternative gospel, you know? where those who are on top will be saved and those on bottom are lost. But the true gospel is that those on top 
are actually lost. And only those on the bottom will be saved. Now, I know perhaps some of you are asking this question right now. Wait a minute. Does this mean that everyone who is rich is going to hell? And that only those who are poor will be saved? And the answer is no. The key is verse 51, okay? But before I let you off the hook, you know, let me, let me, let me say this, okay? The key is verse 51. The proud in the thoughts of their hearts, right? It's a heart condition. It's about who you identify with. So yes, the rich can be saved, but only insofar as they identify with the poor. Only insofar as they realize that their wealth does not mean that they are somebody, that they have significance and worth, but only because of their identity in Christ. Now, perhaps, perhaps some of you at this point are breathing a sigh of relief. That means I can still be rich. And if you say that, I feel, and I want to say this very gently, I feel like you have not been listening. And you are not understanding what Mary is saying in her song. About a hundred years ago, a man writing under the pen name Lewis Carroll wrote two children's books. And the first book was called Alice in Wonderland. And the second book was a sequel called Through the Looking Glass. And through the looking glass, the story goes that Alice is standing before a mirror, which British people call a looking glass. And so, to Alice's utter astonishment, she is able to walk through the looking glass into the world on the other side. And in the world of the looking glass, everything is upside down. Everything is topsy-turvy. All the rules are backwards. And Alice has all of these grand adventures, and it is a strange and wonderful world. But this story is just so brilliant. You know why? Because Lewis Carroll is not just merely writing a children's fable. He's asking a very profound question. And the question is this, which is the real world? Is it the world that we now inhabit with all of its proper rules and conventions? Or is it the world on the other side of the looking glass? The Bible tells us, Mary tells us, Jesus tells us that the world we inhabit is the world upside down, is the world wrong. But that one day, we will all walk through the looking glass. And the world as it should be will be restored, and the world will be renewed, and there will be a great upheaval, and everything that is valued in this life will be despised, and everything that is despised in this life will be valued. And here's the question, which world are you living for? Is it the world as it is now, which the Apostle Paul says in its present form is passing away? Or is it the real world that is to come? The real world whose values seem to us in our culture, in our day, to be completely backwards and upside down and topsy-turvy. I tell you the truth, there will come a great and terrible reversal. And what that means is that we should be wary of success. Listen, I'm not saying that if you believe in the reversal, you should drop out, lay down, and do nothing, you know? You should try your best. In all fields of life, do it with excellence. But 
you should, if success, if and when success comes, you should eye it with a healthy dose of suspicion and skepticism. Why? Because, listen, success so often leads to pride. And pride is spiritual death. You know, so many of us say, when success comes, I won't be proud. But for so many people, they are proud. And so what does that mean? It means that if we really believe in the great reversal to come, we won't be hurtling ourselves headlong into the arms of success. You know, that we won't be killing ourselves to make it, to gain a claim so that one day we could be somebody, so people will know we are somebody. Because we know that in the end, all the somebodies, all those who think they're somebodies, will in the end be nobody. And all the nobodies, and all those who know they're nobodies, will in the end be somebody. Do you believe this? Does your life reflect this? Do you identify with the poor and the lowly in your life. Let me close with this final meditation. This story and this song shows us that reversal is the essence of salvation. You see, in reality, we are all nobodies. Before God, right, we are all poor and lowly, and we are all moral failures. And the only distinction, the only difference, is that some people know it, and they know it in their bones they know it, And some people are under delusion. And they surround their lives with the trappings of success, desperate for significance and worth. But here's the question, okay? If it is the case that we are all truly nobodies, if we are all poor, why should it be that God should lift us up to enjoy the boundless riches of heaven? Why should that be? How is that fair? And here's the answer. Because of the reversal behind the reversal. And the reversal behind the reversal, Paul articulates so beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Let me read to you. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you hear what Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying Jesus Christ before the beginning of time was infinitely wealthy that he enjoyed all the blessings and prerogatives of his divine being, but he so loved us, he so identified with us, that he became as we are, and he endured poverty and ridicule and suffering and then finally death. And so that Jesus Christ on the cross endured the ultimate poverty. He endured the ultimate rejection. He became the cosmic nobody. So that as our substitute, as our Savior, He can give us those things which only belong to Him, the infinite riches and blessings and joy that is His, so that we could have it. You see, salvation is a great exchange. Our poverty on Christ, Christ's riches on us. And when you believe that, when you rejoice in that, it will absolutely transform your life. And you will be utterly for the poor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the reality of the reversal would not be some sort of distant and poetic thing, but it would be something that echoes in our hearts. Lord, we know that in this life, uh, the world tells us so seductively, chase after success, 
Chase after acclaim because that is the only place you will find meaning and significance. But Lord, we pray that we would so love the poor, not just pity the poor, which is nice, but we would identify with the poor, which transforms us. Lord, we pray that you would make us to live gospel-reenacted lives. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.